0: Hello and welcome to a new episode in the New Books and Gender Studies podcast. Uh, I'm one of the co-hosts of the channel, Kyle McMillan, and today it is my pleasure to be with uh, Professor of History Steve Tripp from Grand Valley State University, Uh, and today we will be talking about his new book, Ty Cobb, Baseball, and American Manhood by Roman and Littlefield. Uh, Professor, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Okay, so uh first do you want to kind of give the listeners a rundown of your sort of academic career and what led you to eventually write this project about Taicom.
1: Sure, sure. Um I uh, uh, got my PhD at Carnegie Mellon, uh, which is at the time, and I think this is still true, the only program in the country that uh, is actually a PhD in social and cultural history. Um, I was hired by grad uh, by uh, Grand Valley State University right out of grad school, and uh, uh, to teach primarily Civil War and Reconstruction, which I did uh, quite happily for. Uh, I don't know 10, 12, maybe even 15 years, something like that, but at a certain point I uh, started to get sort of bored uh, teaching the same courses and, and my own kind of intellectual interests were, were moving in other directions, particularly in terms of areas of masculinity. Yeah. And uh, at the same time, <clears throat> I was also teaching our uh, writing history course. And I realized in talking to my students how much uh, many of them absolutely loathed uh, reading history, um, at least academic history. And uh, so this book was really something of an uh, experiment to see if I could uh, write a book uh, that would be of real interest to my students, that something that they would actually want to read. Um, and uh, uh, why Ty Cobb, uh, and, and why talk about Ty Cobb within the context of manhood? Uh, well, I didn't want to leave behind my uh, interest in the Civil War uh, completely. And in fact, I had been making kind of furtive efforts to uh, study uh, Southerners after the Civil War and after Reconstruction, and I was interested in how... Uh, They kind of went on with their lives after defeat uh, and no one had really written on that topic so that fascinated me a little bit and um, uh, so uh, At the same time I just happened to watch the film Cobb uh, Which is a kind of a biopic about Ty Cobb not a very good one, but but it is a biopic and um, from that, I thought, well, geez, I want to know how much of this is really accurate. So I picked up Ty Kott's autobiography, and uh, uh, which he wrote uh, really in, in the last years of his life, and uh, that fascinated me because it was just uh, overwhelmingly uh, an autobiography of Southern honor, and uh, so that was. It sort of helped me to answer the question of where Southerners were going uh, after the Civil War. Uh, at least in part, they were finding new venues in which to exhibit and express their their Southern honor. So, um, I originally envisioned this as a uh, a very short, uh, actually just an article on Ty Cobb uh, and Southern honor. Uh, something that would just be sort of fun while I was mulling over these larger questions of, of the Southerners after the Civil War and Reconstruction. Uh, <clears throat> but in time, I began to realize that uh, there was a story to be told, uh, a very large story to be told about Cobb. Uh, because as soon as you start talking about Cobb and Southern honor, uh, the logical question is, well, how did Northerners uh, respond to all of this? What did they think of this guy? And uh so here you are Now I've been I wrote a whole book <laughs> To answer that question
0: Yeah, so in your introduction You mentioned that You know, this book isn't a Biography of Ty Cobb And uh, the reasons why you wanted to situate it within this larger conversation of American manhood is you believe there were some misconceptions or kind of misrepresentations of Ty Cobb in earlier attempts. Uh, so why did you think it was important to sort of have a reexamination?
1: Well, uh, what really fascinated me as I started reading about Cobb is uh how popular he was, because in most of the literature um, about Cobb, most of our sort of public memory, I guess, about Cobb is that he was just this horribly hated uh, individual um, that nobody liked him. Players didn't like him. Fans didn't like him. uh, uh, The press didn't like him. uh, But in fact, he was uh, remarkably popular. He was easily the most popular baseball player in the game uh, during the early 20th century. Uh, So that, in fact, created yet another uh kind of question and that is well how did this guy who was uh admittedly uh, a very violent um uh and vindictive individual uh become so popular what what uh why did fans uh uh, want to see this, uh, and in what ways did his behavior, uh, and again, you know, overwhelmed with these notions of honor and such, uh, why and how did that appeal to fans uh, from the North uh, who were primarily uh, urban uh, at this point, um, and mostly from uh, the kind of what we call the emerging new middle class uh, uh, and uh, uh, wealthier working classes and uh, so answering those kind of questions really brought me uh, into uh, the world of, of masculinity uh, during the early 20th century
0: yeah so what exactly happened in Ty Cobb's early life um, that sort of eventually led him to baseball, but also began to shape his views on manhood.
1: Yeah. Well, um, the way that I handle this in the book is is uh, to explain that there was no single influence in Cobb's life. Uh, in fact, he had many influences. Um, uh, he came from... A very small town in northeastern georgia a very very rural community uh his father was a um a school teacher uh and something of a kind of uh kind of a middle class jack of all trades i guess is the best way to say it uh he he uh dabbled in the newspaper business he ran for and at an one state legislature one year. Uh, Then became a county supervisor uh, for the school district uh, that uh, Cobb, Cobb in fact, went to. Um, And uh, so Cobb, growing up in this environment, uh, was, in fact, in contact with with large numbers and and diverse uh, numbers of of, uh, men, uh, all of whom... uh, express their masculinity in 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 ways that uh, appealed to Cobb and so Cobb became this kind of amalgam of many many uh, different forms of, of manhood um, and uh, uh, it, Growing up in the rural South, um, he took it sort of for granted, I guess, the basic contours of, of southern manhood—that uh, basically uh, the individual is is only sort of as worth as as much as other people uh, give them. Uh, that the way that one proves his masculinity is is by uh, kind of daring acts and and. Uh, uh feats of of, of bravery and, and that sort of thing. Uh uh Cobb himself was sort of always looking for a competition of some sort. Uh and the pack of kids that he, he wandered around with in the streets of this little town Royston um, you know, were were constantly Competing with each other in, in just about everything, you know, not just, uh, uh, sports, but also, um you know, uh, games at school, uh, uh, at one point Cobb even, to, supposedly uh, was dared to walk uh, uh, tight wire uh, from one uh, end of uh, from one side of the street to the other and did that uh, He would uh, race across uh, railroad tracks uh, when the trains were coming and that sort of thing you know just kind of nutty stuff like that and and all of the kids were involved in these sorts of things um, and uh, cobb 's father was very eager for him. To in fact, uh, kind of embrace a kind of middle class standard and and uh, his father was very much a a, a a follower of kind of new south ideology that is you know that uh, uh, the south would be uh, would rise again on the fortunes and aspirations of of a kind of new middle class of, of men who are more entrepreneurial and professional and um, he tried very. Cobb was his oldest son, and he tried very, very hard to fit Cobb into that, um, into that mold. Uh, uh, he introduced him to lawyers at one time. Uh, Cobb went to a, a kind of shadowed a doctor, um, and uh, even sat in on a on an operation uh, so that he could see how how medicine worked. Um, uh, at one point, uh, his father thought, "Oh, maybe you know we can have him do a, a military career." So he was all set to send him to to West Point and uh, that sort of thing. Um, but Cobb was really just far too rambunctious for any of that. And uh, uh, eventually, at a very young age, actually joined the local semi pro baseball team, and uh, that is really what what kind of excited Cobb more than anything else was just playing ball. And, and, uh, so, uh, eventually Cobb's father, uh, had to let his son go. And so at the, what we would consider today, I think the remarkably young age of, uh, 17 years old Cobb left home to, to play, uh, professional ball, semi-professional ball.
0: And, uh,
1: went on from there to play baseball.
0: So you talked a little bit about this uh, before, but what did baseball mean to the people of Cobb's era?
1: Well, um, yeah, uh, it, uh, it you know, this was the time really when baseball became the national game. Um, it, there was no sort of, preordained, uh, uh, movement, you know, that baseball was going to be, uh, the most popular game. Um, and in fact, in the late 19th, early 20th century, uh, there were a couple different sports that were vying for that kind of popularity. uh, uh prior to baseball's ascendancy, uh, boxing prize fighting was probably the most popular sport. Um, and, uh, uh, football, uh, was becoming increasingly popular, particularly at colleges during the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, basketball, of course, had just been invented, and, uh, so that was gaining a little bit of appeal. Uh, but, but baseball, for all intents and purposes, sometime during this early 20th century, became, uh, uh ascended to, to the top. And, um, and it it did so i think because unlike uh the other sports it it resonated most with this new middle class um this is a time in which uh, uh you know more and more people are moving to cities and uh uh they are also um uh, becoming enmeshed in a, a kind of new economy one that they had not Heretofore experienced uh, historians call this uh, corporatization. Uh, just simply, the scale of of businesses began to grow exponentially. Um, of course, uh, among working classes, this meant larger factories and things like that. But for middle class people, it meant uh, you know uh, larger offices and office buildings and things uh, where they were uh, kind of cooped up as clerks and filers and, uh, uh, sales agents and things of that sort. And, uh, they're primarily, uh, uh, young, ambitious, eager, uh, they, uh, like order, they like regimentation. Um, they, uh, you know, they see that as kind of their, um, uh, uh, the mark of their professionalism is, as, uh, as to have rational organization. And so they're they they're immersed in all this, but at the same time, they uh, also realize, I think, to a large extent, the kind of world that they've lost, uh, the the kind of more swarthy, uh, masculine world in some ways, but also a world of, of, of independence and personal autonomy. And baseball is, is unique, I think, of all sports in that it encapsulates... That uh, tension between uh, being both a kind of uh, team member and subsuming uh, your personal goals for the goals of a team. You have to work together to some extent. Um, You have to play together. Uh, It requires a certain amount of order and self control uh, to, you know. Do anything, you know, run the bases, uh, 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 play defense and baseball, uh, you know, do, pull a double play, that sort of thing, and um, uh, at the same time, it, there are these moments of, of in which the individual stands apart right? Uh, and when he's, uh, hitting, uh, when he's running the bases, even, uh, at certain moments when he's playing in uh, in the field, um, the ball player stands apart. And, uh, so baseball has this kind of appeal then for people who want it both ways. They want that personal autonomy, but they also want, uh, to be considered part of something greater. Uh, and kind of reflective of that uh, is the notion of statistics, right? In baseball, baseball is obsessed with statistics, and uh, those statistics often kind of embody uh, the uh, personal, both the personal and the group, right? Um, uh, the, the statistics themselves are personal, but they kind of add up into a kind of uh, group um, uh, group, po- group composite. And uh, uh, at the same time, right, they're also just highly statistical. And this this appeals to this new professional class who, you know, are doing nothing but pushing numbers sometimes in in the work that they perform. So uh, uh, I think that has a lot to to do with the ascendancy of baseball at this time.
0: So did Cobb's version uh, or, like, performance of manhood match or more shape the type of manhood that baseball was starting to value.
1: Um, well, it, th- boy, that's a really good question because um, uh, prior to Cobb, uh, uh, baseball was was uh, did not have. Uh, well, I shouldn't say prior to Cobb, but uh, baseball had very few stars, uh, and the stars that they did have. Uh, were uh, prided themselves on being kind of part of a team, uh, which, right, is very consistent with these kind of middle class values and such like that that these folks have. Uh, and uh, in fact, uh, if you look back in the late 19th century, really the the quote unquote stars of the game. Uh, the people who got the most notoriety were, were not necessarily the ball players, but they were uh, the managers, uh, and sometimes uh, even the owners. Um, uh, that's not to say that there weren't star ball players, but uh, they didn't have that same kind of aura that that we now attribute, you know, as sort of the superstar athlete and such like that. Um, and so Cobb is sort of unique in that. And remembering, you know, this guy came from the South. He wasn't at all part of this new middle class, uh, aside from you know what his father had taught him. But he was he was much more sort of uh, enmeshed in uh, the, the kind of swarthy, um, uh, independent personal autonomy of, of, of more traditional Southern whites, and so. Cobb found it very, very difficult to, uh, to compromise with his teammates. Uh, uh, and, uh, he also found it very difficult to, to kind of not stand out. uh, uh he, he, he was something of a showman. He, uh, he liked, uh, the public audience and, uh, he was extremely articulate and, uh, <laughs> Even, I think it's fair to say, kind of a charismatic, at least in his conversations with the press. Uh, so he really uh, uh, kind of defies in many ways these kind of, you know, kind of stayed middle class standards. But at the same time, by uh, bringing attention to himself, by, uh, uh, you know, when he played baseball, you know, the thing to always remember about Cobb is that, he wasn't just this great hitter; he was this great uh, uh, baseman, and that's really where his uh, his initial fame came from: is, is his ability to steal bases, the the chances that he took, taking dares. He, in fact, you know, defied the statistical odds, uh, as as uh, fans and ballplayers knew it at that time. Uh, so he's one of these, you know, this the sort of individual who who really kind of goes against the grain. I think of a lot of uh the received uh, the science of baseball as as people knew it at that time uh, and and fans uh, like that because it was you know as much as they like the predictable the rational the organized uh, remember they, they they still are looking for outlets for a different kind of masculinity and Cobb uh, completely defied those. Uh, uh, kind of standards and mass imposed uh, that sort of stayed middle class and so he he fits into this world in in ways that in some ways is, is consistent with uh, the standards of the day but also in ways challenge the standards of the day and that's you know if you think about it that's perfect right uh, for for making a name for yourself right uh you don't want to come off as someone who is completely alien, but at the same time you don't want to come off as someone who uh is um, uh, just like everybody else so he uh yeah, he was sort of the right person at the right time i guess is the best way to say that.
0: Right. So you kind of alluded to it a few times, but what did the notion of honor mean to Cobb? And then how did that notion translate to his performance on the diamond? Yeah.
1: Um, Well, honor meant uh, a couple things, I think, to Cobb. One, it meant uh, always being the best. Uh, 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 Honor is in some sense a kind of pecking order. Uh, particularly as it's played out in the South. And so uh, uh, for Cobb, uh, always had to sort of uh, uh, place himself first. Uh, he saw every competition uh, in life, uh, not just in baseball, but in life, as a kind of competition of self. Uh, and so, you know, whether it's. Uh, uh, battling a pitcher, you know, when he's at bat or in a batting race in which he's competing with, uh, Napoleon LaJoy or Shoeless Joe Jackson, uh, or a contract dispute with the, uh, 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 owner of, of the Detroit Tigers, a fellow by the name of Frank Navin, um, or in the battles that he eventually had with, uh, uh, the president of the American League, um, Ben Johnson, he always saw those as kind of personal competitions. And he was determined always to win those personal competitions. Uh, so that's that's part of it. Part of it is, uh, for, for Cobb, it meant um, a kind of extreme form of personal autonomy uh, that no one uh, would control him uh that no one could make him to do his bidding. Uh and remembering again that he comes from the south, um southerners uh in a generation two generations before Cobb uh attributed the man of honor or, or the man without mo- honor as a slave. Uh, and those notions are still very strong in the south. And and to Cobb then, uh, any effort uh, to to limit his freedom, to to limit his personal autonomy, he took as as a a kind of threat uh, to. I mean, we use the term manhood and such like that, but it, he really would have seen it as a threat to his 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 uh, humanness, not as humanity, but as his, his being human, being a person, uh, and thinking of of African Americans and slaves as being less than less than persons uh so that notion then of kind of personal autonomy and then on the, you know the flip side is then that uh just as he wanted to protect himself from being that that enslaved person um, uh, the great victory for Kauf was also always making someone else do his bidding uh you know uh making someone else into uh, a kind of servile uh, to him, and uh, uh, one of the most, I think, kind of interesting things when you read Cobb's autobiography is, is how often he'll allude to this fact that you know when he, when he gets revenge upon someone, he's essentially uh, making them do his bidding uh, and uh, humiliating them in some form so that they are less than human. Right. Um, honor to oh, go ahead. No, that was it. That was—I was just saying that—that's sort of what Cobb meant by honor, how Cobb lived his life.
0: Yeah. So, in one of your chapters, uh, you title it, and this isn't your original words, but sort of how people thought of Ty Cobb. as uh, titled "The Most Unpopular Popular Man in Baseball." So what kind of explained this paradox and how did, uh, Cobb's notion of manhood, uh, match those of sort of, uh, you know, this new yeah. professional yeah. man, but also yeah. in unpopular ways.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, uh, uh, that, that statement, the most popular, unpopular, um, I think I'm the only scholar that's studied Ty Cobb who found that quote, so I'm very proud of that. (laughs) Because it really, I think, encapsulates Cobb perfectly uh, in in terms of his relationship with fans. Uh, And it really, I think, says something more about the fans than maybe it does about Cobb. Fans, when they go to a baseball game, uh, then as now, I think, are looking for some release. Um, that's maybe less true in baseball, which has become, I think, kind of a more um, passive sport in a way. But it's certainly true in football, uh, and and in some ways, I think, in in thinking about baseball in the early twentieth century, um, it's wise to sort of think of. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, Fans in in that light is <laughs> almost a, like football players or football fans. Uh, you know the Cleveland's dog pound, or uh, and I should know this being from Oakland, the Oakland Raiders. They're you know their fans and their what do they call it the Black Hole. Uh, now fans weren't quite that rowdy. I mean they didn't. Uh, well, some fans actually dressed up and made a lot of noise, like Black Hole fans and such like that. Raider fans, but. Um, they, uh, uh, more w- went to the game really as a way to kind of exhibit a kind of masculinity, a manhood that they were not able to do at the office. Um, the, the, uh, ballpark in that way is a kind of a place of liminality. It's a, you know, a kind of in-between place. It's not a place where, uh, that is, uh, you know, rule, governed by the rules of, of, the rest of society and so fans could act in some pretty uh, wild ways and Cobb fit their uh, uh, desires perfectly he, he kind of satiated their desires perfectly because he was this kind of player that they, you know, loved to boo. And Cobb himself uh, always said, uh, and, and this is in some ways kind of Cobb being the master PR person, but also Cobb being the master man of honor, um, always said that he, he played to the fans. Uh, and meaning he, he, you know, invited fans to, in fact, boo him. Uh, remembering again that, you know, every contest for Cobb is an affair of honor. Uh, one of those contests then is with the fans. He felt day in and day out, uh, on the ball field that he had to prove himself to those fans. And so, uh, nothing satisfied him more than booing fans because, uh, in any given day, he made it his task to turn their uh, jeers into cheers. Um, uh, and, and he's very forthright about this. You know, he talks about this constantly while he was a player. And then, and then, uh, years later when he reminisces about playing baseball that, uh, it, you know, he loved booing fans. He, he loved to surprise them. He loved to ignite them. Uh, he loved to frustrate them. Um, but he always uh, wanted to come back to this notion that eventually they're going to respect him for who he is, and eventually they're going to cheer him, uh, uh, maybe reluctantly, but they'll, but they'll cheer him. And uh, so, you know, there's this wonderful just sort of dialogue, I guess is the best way to say it, uh, between uh, the fans and Cobb that they came uh to try to uh as much as anything to to uh, frustrate him and and uh to test his will and uh to test his skills and and to thwart his efforts and then Cobb on the other hand sort of you know essentially uh you know standing in the middle of the field saying you know come on I'll take on all comers and uh, uh showing on the ball field that, that he meant that, that he could he could withstand their criticisms, he could withstand their booze, and uh uh make them cheer in the long run. So he's a fun guy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and one of the uh more interesting kind of confrontations that he has with a fan, because he had many, but right, one, yeah. one of the more interesting ones is when the fan uh sort of contested his whiteness. I don't know if you want right. to go into that particular yeah. incident. Uh, yeah,
1: that was in 1911 against a, uh, uh, in New York, at the polo grounds uh, where they, uh, the Yankees, they weren't called the Yankees then, uh, they were called the Highlanders, but um, where the Highlanders played. Um, and uh, this happened in May of 1911. What's interesting about this, a couple of things. One is Uh, it's it's part of this series that they were playing against the the Highlanders. In the first game, uh, Cobb was actually rewarded uh, um, with this big plaque from the uh, city of New York and the fans, and they all cheered him and all that sort of thing. Uh, But there was one fan who was at that game and then uh, subsequently the next game uh, by the name of George Luker Uh, or Lucker, depending on how uh, you want to pronounce it, uh, who uh, uh, really, I guess, more than uh, normal, uh, got under Cobb's skin. Um, And uh, we're not too sure exactly everything that passed by between them, um, but uh, Cobb, as we often do, uh, yelled back at Lucker. Uh, and Luker yelled at him and, and you have to remember ballparks at this time period were really very intimate affairs uh, there, was, uh, there was not the space between uh, uh, the field and and the stands that there is now uh, these were smaller ballparks maybe you know holding 8 to 10,000 fans that sort of thing so uh, generally if a fan wanted to be heard he could be heard and this fan wanted to be heard and uh among the things that he uh, apparently said is that, um, uh, Cobb was the product of a, uh, uh, uh relationship between, uh, Cobb's mother and a black man that he was in the And of course, this is fighting words to a, uh, a, a white man, especially a white man of the South. And, um, it didn't take long for things to uh, devolve. Uh, uh, the fans started saying these things around the first inning, and uh, initially Cobb, uh, amazingly, with with great deal of restraint, tried very hard to, to avoid the fan. In fact, at one point, uh, he stayed out in the outfield um, rather than come back to To uh, uh, the dugout in between innings just so that he wouldn't have to to walk by this fan Um, but eventually he did have to go back to the dugout because he was going to hit and uh, the fan went at it um, and Cobb was just fuming getting furious and uh, uh, according to Cobb and you know who knows if this is true but according to Cobb Uh, uh, his uh, teammates, Cobb's teammates, many of whom were not really speaking to Cobb. Cobb was not very popular at all in 1911 among the rest of his Tiger teammates, but uh, uh, told Cobb that uh, he wouldn't be a man if he didn't uh, retaliate, if he didn't confront this fan. And uh, that's all Cobb needed and uh, without uh, any more to-do or conversation, he bolted uh, from the dugout, ran, uh, 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 hopped the fence uh, between the dugout and the stands, uh, and essentially climbed up, the, I don't know, five or six rows, something like that, you know, not even using the aisle, uh, and uh, essentially mauled the fan uh, using uh, uh, not only his fists, but also his spiked shoes. Um, and uh, really, from all that we know, he became rather kind of unhinged. Uh, the fan himself had, had um, been in an industrial accident. He was a—he uh, worked for a newspaper company, and doing the printing. He was a printer, and he had gotten his hands mangled in one of the newfangled printing machines, and, and uh, so he did not have uh, full functioning hands. And uh, uh, when fans protested and said, "You know, this man's a crippled cop," said, "I don't, you know." Uh, Exploitive, exploitive, expletive, <laughs> and continued to kick him. Uh, only after um, uh, his his teammates came and essentially dragged him out, you know, to calm stop, uh, he was uh, immediately uh, kicked out of a game. Uh, and this is where life and, and the game gets really kind of interesting uh, because uh, the fans themselves, and, and remember, these are New York fans. They were not uh, Detroit fans. Uh, uh, begin to boo because they felt that Luker should have been expelled uh, as well. And so then Luker was expelled. And uh, as Cobb uh, walked off the field, fans actually cheered him. And uh, so then you have this kind of, and, you know, Ban Johnson, the president, immediately gets involved in this and, and suspends Cobb uh, indefinitely. Uh, Ban Johnson himself was a... Uh, 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 kind of self righteous uh, when he took over uh, the uh, American League. He eventually kind of, he actually sort of invented the American League. Uh, he had wanted this kind of uh, very law and orderish kind of league. He didn't like the rowdiness of baseball and, and wanted a much more controlled kind of atmosphere. Uh, and so, you know, he, of course, you know, was aghast, appalled at what Kobb had done here. And, uh, so Dan Johnson uh, suspends Cobb, um, and so Cobb's kind of, you know, in limbo here. And at this point, uh, uh, this is where the uh, life gets really strange because many uh, players, uh, including uh, Christy Mathewson, you know, sort of the saint of baseball or something, you know, comes out and says, "Oh, so, you know, Cobb was wrong, you know, you just can't behave like this. Uh uh his own teammates realizing that they could not win uh without him actually stood by Cobb and uh refused to play uh uh until uh Cobb was reinstated and, and that led to, uh one game in fact where uh, the Tigers had to field a kind of amateur team because the Tiger players wouldn't play uh, the press was was very much kind of divided uh, most of the New York press, with one exception, one newspaper, uh, sided with Cobb, but most of the press was like, oh, this is horrible, this is horrible. But the fans themselves, uh, by a fairly large uh, percentage, seemed to have sided with Cobb. Uh, one newspaper, in fact, did a poll of fans as they uh, were entering the ball, ball field um, a couple days after this event uh, and asked them. Uh, if Cobb was right or wrong to go into the stands and the fans uh, by something I think like a 3 to 1 margin or something like that uh, sided with Cobb and said that Cobb was justified in this behavior um, and you know I, I, I use that event as a kind of example then of, of uh, the kind of fans mentality uh, how in fact they liked someone uh, who, uh, you know, took it, uh, <laughs> took it to the man, you know, took it, uh, uh, who fought back, who, you know, refused to uh, take an insult. Uh, in their lives, uh, they couldn't do that, right? They were part of a, you know, more orderly culture. Uh, but the ball field is different. And uh, they they felt that uh, George Lucre had violated a kind of ethic. Um, and, uh, uh, by calling, you know, Cobb essentially a person of mixed race. And, uh, they thought as well, you know, if you can't, uh, you can't take it as well as give it, then, you know, you're, you're, you're worthy of the kind of assault that Cobb in fact visited upon this guy. So, um
0: yeah and baseball.
1: I you know it must have been a lot of fun to watch these games
0: <laughs> oh, oh yeah,
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it was just a very different kind of environment i uh one of the joys of writing this book was that um you know, I got to read the sports page uh for you know I don't know six or seven years while I was doing the research, you know every summer I spend my time reading the sports page of sports journals and such like that. And and the sense that you get by reading this is that uh, it was just you know uh, baseball was just I think was just a lot more fun back then to, you know to watch I mean it's much more unpredictable and, and uh, uh, dangerous I guess in some ways but but just a really fascinating uh, uh, environment
0: yeah and when when luker kind of uh brings up to Ty Cobb his mother I think even though this is kind of going back into Cobb's earlier life but i I think the relationship that Cobb had with his mother and then that sort of uh, what it had to do with his father as well that sort of earlier incident in life uh well yeah of-
1: <laughs> yeah and that's something that I mean the fan wouldn't have known about this right um And uh, very, very few people knew about this. But, um, yeah, when Cobb was uh, uh, actually within weeks before Cobb was called up uh, by the Detroit Tigers uh, for his uh, major league debut at the age of 18, uh, his uh, mother uh, killed his father under very uh, suspicious circumstances circumstances uh, Cobb uh, Ty Cobb was in uh, Augusta playing for the Augusta tourists uh, of the southern week at this time and so he was not at home um, but we don't know that much about him people have have uh, uh, you know come up with all sorts of theories about you know what was actually going on um, all we know is that uh, uh, Ty Cobbs uh, father William Cobb who was then uh, superintendent of the county schools? So he spent a lot of time away um, visiting, you know, schools throughout the county. And remember this was horse and buggy day. So he would have, you know, had to ride his horse and, you know, be gone for a couple of days at a time, that sort of thing. Well, one evening, one, uh, and it was in the evening, which was sort of unusual. Um, uh, William said that he had to go out of town um, and, uh, uh, so he went out of town, uh, or seemed to be going out of town, but then for some reason uh, doubled back. And um, then uh, late at night, um, uh, the the lights were all out in the home. Uh, William returned, and uh, according to Cobb's mother. Um, he then uh, tried to enter the house through a window, and uh, Mrs. Cobb uh, had a gun um, and uh, uh, shot at this intruder. At least that's the story that she told, and um, and it, from there it gets rather weird because uh, she shot once. Um, and then a couple of minutes passed and then, uh, she shot again. And, uh, the rumors were, uh, and some people give more credence to these rumors than others. And, and, and uh, I don't know In some ways I think it, it's not all that significant. Uh, what, uh, whether the rumors are true or not, but the rumors uh, were that she, um, was having an affair with someone and that by um uh William returning home um, he caught them in the act and in fact some of the stories say that it wasn't uh Mrs. Cobb who shot William at all it was it was this uh paramour who shot him and and uh, um, uh yeah so you know uh Cobb himself, uh, again being the man of honor, um, never deserted his mother. He he absolutely worshipped his father, uh, you know, and and everything that we know about him, he was he was absolutely devastated by this, Um, and and as well you you can imagine, you know, I mean, Uh, you lose your father, and then you find out that your mother is being you know arraigned in court. for For the murder um, that could you know that would destroy any semblance of a happy home um, but uh, <clears throat> Ty Cobb in all of this, never deserted his mother uh, he He went to the trial. Um, he helped raise the funds for, for her trial to defend herself. She, she, got, she got off. She didn't spend any time. Um, and uh, she often came to visit him uh, in Detroit, uh, stayed in the comp household, all of that. Um, But yeah, there probably is some truth, at least within this Luker incident, that he was uh, highly sensitive to any attacks upon his mother and, uh, you know, any uh, kind of reference of his mother as someone who was sleeping around uh, either with, you know, a white person, but, but obviously also with a black person would have been something that would have incited him to go in.
0: Right. And just for maybe uh, those listeners who aren't uh, huge baseball fans, um, before Ty Cobb starts to deteriorate physically, how good at baseball was Ty
1: Cobb? <laughs> uh, well, He, he was uh, uh, just extraordinarily good. Uh, I mean, there's no... Doubt about it, uh, uh, and you can look at this statistically, uh, which people love to do back then. Uh, he uh, won the batting title what eleven straight years or twelve straight. 12 straight years? I should know that. 12 straight years, nine years in a row, um, uh, he had by far the highest, uh, and still has the highest batting average of any ball player. Um, and you can say, wow, well, you know, okay, uh, people just used to hit for a higher average, but, but his average was still, uh, I think what, uh, 10 points higher than, than the number two person. Um, there was one, uh, three or four year span in which he averaged, uh, nearly 400, uh, you know, we haven't had a 400 hitter, uh, in decades, uh, and he averaged that over a three or four year period. He was just extraordinary. Um, but again, you know, uh, so much of his appeal wasn't just, uh, what he did with the bat. It was also what he did, uh, on the base paths, uh, he was fast. There's, there's, uh, absolutely no doubt about the fact that he was probably, uh, at least in his prime, the fastest ball player, uh, on the base paths. But even more than that, he was just this incredibly astute, uh, uh, student of the game. Uh, he, he made every part of the game a kind of science. Uh, including, uh, you know, how to steal a base, uh, how to slide. Uh, He had uh, any number of ways in which he could slide. Um, And, uh, you know, in that way, elude tags and things like that. Um, I uh, grew up watching Ricky Henderson. Ricky Henderson had one way to slide. He always flew head first. Um, Cobb. Uh, never would have, sl- he did slide head first this very first time and got mauled by, uh, the, uh, infielder, um, for doing so, uh, and thereafter never slid head first, uh, and realized that you give away, uh, the offensive if, if you try to slide head first. Uh, if, if you, yeah, yeah, so, um, you know, he had all these different ways that he could slide, uh, and just was incredibly elusive. Um, he also, uh, knew sort of, um, I think partly by by observation and and partly by uh, intuition, uh, kind of when to attack uh, and to take. Uh, he he claimed that he was this uh, this great uh, student of psychology, uh, and there's probably some truth to that. He knew exactly when uh, he could unnerve another player by attacking. In some ways, you know. Um, taking an extra base or, uh, uh, you know, acting aggressive in some form or another. Uh, so, um, uh, the, uh, fans who, you know, later talked about what it was like to watch Ty Cobb or, or the, uh, the media that really loved Ty Cobb because he was, he was so colorful and, and, uh, uh, so exciting to watch. Um, uh, all said basically the same thing when you go to a baseball game uh you have to watch Ty Cobb if you don't watch Ty Cobb you're going to miss something and uh so you know from the moment he uh, strode to the batting box uh to the last out of the game he was he was the center of attention and uh, uh you know doing things that that you know no other player could could attempt because simply no other player had the wherewithal uh, skill
0: to do that. Yeah. And I think one of the bigger sort of what ifs, not only for students of history, but also baseball fans is Ty Cobb begins to deteriorate with the ascendancy of Babe Ruth. And I think what is most interesting about your chapter about Cobb and Ruth is that not only were they uh, contrasting styles of play, but almost contrasting or sort of evolving notions of manhood, if you wanted to talk about that.
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because, um, uh, you know, Cobb encapsulates, uh, I think, early 20th century manhood, sort of pre-World War One manhood. Uh, and uh, Ruth very much encapsulates, I think, what we would call sort of, you know, the roaring 20s, not just in terms of manhood, but in terms of, uh, uh, you know, the broader culture more generally. Uh, Ruth was, Cobb was uh, a kind of Victorian in his constant effort to, to control and maintain uh he was also rooted in uh the south and and uh, again this kind of rugged individualism of the late 19th century uh ruth is you know uh kind of I think what we would say kind of the modern notion of celebrity uh someone who just brought attention to himself for the sake of bringing attention to himself uh, uh you know someone who you know was was known for his gluttonous behavior, his excessive behavior, and, uh, um, that sort of thing. But, um, and, and there's no doubt about it that, uh, at the point in which Ruth ascends, uh, and, you know, begins to hit home runs just in, in kind of, you know, remarkable, uh, streaks of, of power, uh, around 1918, 1919, uh, Cobb is, you know, at that point in his middle 30s um, and uh, although still uh, hitting at a very high average, uh, uh, he's beginning, you're right, his his talents are beginning to deteriorate. But what's fascinating, I think, in part about this is that, um, you know, now we kind of remember Ruth as this uh, kind of constant celebrity and the, the babe, the Bambino. And we think, you know, Oh, this guy was just, you know, adored and loved. Um, but that's not entirely true. Uh, while Ruth was doing this behavior, he really shocked a lot of people and he got into a lot of trouble. I think, uh, and I, I, so I won't get this exactly right, but in one year, in fact, I think he was suspended two or three times, uh, either by the club, uh, the Yankees or by, uh, the American league. Uh, and he was in constant trouble. Um, and the remarkable thing I think about that is that, uh, at that same time for, for, uh, reasons that I think go back to, to Cobb's ability, uh, to be his own best public relations man. Um, Cobb begins to have this kind of renaissance of being the the elder statesman of the game, of of being uh, the kind of uh, wise, almost kind of like father figure, um, which is remarkable because on the field Cobb is as petulant and as disruptive uh, disruptive as ever, but but the press really painted him as someone who is uh, the good guy. And in fact, in, in the worst of these times when Ruth is getting suspended and having all these problems and he, and he had just, uh, fantastic, uh, arguments with, with both the press and his manager and things like that. Um, uh, there are a couple editorials that come out during this time that compare Cobb and Ruth, and uh, in ways that essentially say, you know, Babe Ruth could learn a few things about proper behavior from Ty Cobb, and and uh, uh, which, you know, I think, you know, in hindsight we would say, wow, where did this come from? You know, Babe Ruth, you know, he's 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 the man child, you know, this one evil entity. And, of course, it wasn't really completely like that. So, um, yeah, uh, uh, but at the same time, and and this is also sort of interesting that that in some ways Cobb kind of got off free, uh, got free. Uh, Cobb uh, saw Ruth just as he saw every other rival, and that is someone to be defeated. And um, he he detested Ruth. At least initially, uh, and he detested Ruth for uh, a variety of reasons, not the least of which um, he was convinced uh, that that Ruth was uh, uh, racially mixed. And, uh, uh, and and in Cobb's kind of way of thinking, even if Ruth wasn't really uh, African American, he in Cobb's view, both looked African American and behaved African American, so he was essentially African American. And uh, of course, Cobb wouldn't have used that polite term; he would have used one uh, derogatory, pejorative term. Um, and and so, you know, for Cobb, Ruth was always this this source of uh, this person that he wanted to defeat, um, and he believed you know, given his, his racial sort of ethnic biases against Ruth, uh, that he could easily beat him, uh, with intelligence. Um, and, uh, in, in the Cobb, uh, memory of things, uh, he in fact did that. Uh, Cobb claimed, um, that uh, he uh, was able to abuse Ruth to no end. That uh, he uh, that Ruth never hit very well against uh, his Detroit Tigers. That uh, uh, he kind of had Ruth's number. Um, the statistics tell us otherwise. That in fact Ruth hit very well against Cobb's team, uh, uh, and, and uh, you know when they when. when against each other uh, that, uh, in fact, uh, Ruth always hit better than Cobb. Cobb himself never didn't always have very good games against the Yankees uh, at that point in time in his career when he had to face Ruth. So, uh, Which is uh, also uh, another kind of fascinating thing about Cobb is that, uh, and this is also sort of part of the Cobb, uh, I don't know what you would say, toolbox of honor or something like that, and that is that Cobb lied. Uh, he, he lied prolifically. Uh, in fact, I think that was one of the most enjoyable things that I wrote about. It was, it was I thought, and, and one of the things that, that uh, no other scholars would have shown about Cobb, is that uh, he was a prolific liar, both during uh, his playing career and after. Um, he believed that uh, part of being on, or part of this notion of having control and things like that, was... Um, if, if you had honor, uh, if you were in control, then your word would have to be accepted over someone else's word. Uh, if if you lost control, uh, then someone could uh, uh, challenge your word. But as long as you were in power, uh, your word counted. And it uh, uh, sounds a little bit like modern politics, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, and so he did that with Ruth, essentially, Uh, both while they were playing and especially afterwards and and after Ruth died, uh, Cobb could say anything that he wanted to about Babe Ruth. And among the things he said is that he uh, had uh, Ruth's number and was in complete control of Ruth and all this sort of stuff. So, um, yeah. Yeah,
0: so... we we've taken up a lot of your time. I was I was wondering if you wanted to close out with maybe if people were really interested in checking out your book, and then in that topic in particular, do you have like two or three books that you would recommend that people sort of check out? And then finally, what are you working on in your sort of upcoming work? Yeah, book? Yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: Oh, the first question—that's a good one. Um, uh, books that that are sort of consistent, I guess, on the same topic, I guess, is what you're wondering. Well, I'll tell you, um, uh, the historian that that I really like, and I I think, um, at least for this project, really uh, inspired me to think about uh, sports and masculinity the way that I did, is uh, Elliot Gorn, who wrote a book. Gosh, it's been a few years uh, maybe 15 20 years ago um, uh, called the manly art which is about uh, boxing in the in the 19th century but uh, uh, I think uh, his work is just really really uh, uh, interesting in how he deals with masculinities Um, there's also uh, John Casson K-A-S-S-O-N, uh, who wrote a book called uh, The Perfect Man, um, which is actually a book. The title is much longer than that, but it's essentially a book about um, uh, Sandow, the bodybuilder, uh, Houdini, and uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs, the writer, creator of Tarzan. Who, who uh, And he writes about these sort of same notions of, of the changing face I guess of masculinity uh, during the early 20th century so um, those two books I think in particular really got me thinking about uh, uh, about baseball and where baseball fit in with, with all of this um, in terms of my my own work um, I'm now uh, just in the beginning uh, process of uh, uh, what I think is a pretty exciting project um, and it's really going to what is in many ways I think sort of my my first love in terms of the subject matter and that's the Great Depression um, both my parents were children of the Great Depression and I grew up uh, listening to stories from them and from my grandparents about what it was like to uh, to live during the Great Depression and and all the suffering they went through and that sort of thing. So so I've always been fascinated with fascinated with this period, and um, uh, I've also uh, uh, obviously been in, uh, fascinated with uh, the topic of uh, 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 manhood and masculinities, and and I've always wondered about you know what was it like you know for these men you know hundreds and thousands, probably like millions of men who. Uh, uh, lost work and, and uh, struggled and uh, to make ends meet and, and uh, uh, you know saw what you know we now call the American dream sort of evaporate uh, in front of them. So I've been uh, fascinated with that. So uh, pairing those two things together uh, uh, has always been sort of something that I have wanted to to study at some point in time. And I think there's a kind of urgency, uh, to that at this time, uh, because, uh, one of the terms, uh, that, uh, was used to describe these men during the Great Depression has now, uh, kind of re-entered our vocabulary, uh, the forgotten man. Uh, this is a term that, uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt used initially in 1932, um, uh, Part of his campaign uh, speech to uh, uh, identify those people who he thought needed more support from the government, and um, uh, so he is essentially kind of advocated for them. Um, and then from there, it became a uh, uh, entered popular culture. Uh, there's a musical number from Gold Diggers of 1933 that talks about the forgotten man. Uh, there's any number of short stories and novels that either use the term forgotten man or, or at least talk about, uh, that kind of person, the person who's been overlooked and neglected. And, uh, um, and of course, uh, more recently, uh, our president used the term during his inauguration to talk about the forgotten, he didn't say forgotten man, he said, but the forgotten people and then the men and women who, who, uh, are, government has forgotten. So um, kind of pairing all those things together, uh, my my desire here is to write a book about the forgotten men of the Great Depression, uh, calling it a social cultural biography of the forgotten man. So we'll see how that pans out.
0: <laughs> well, that, that sounds really interesting. And once you finish that project, we'll have to bring you back on the podcast for, the, for that <laughs> book.
1: If it takes as long as it took me to write Taikal, that could be a long time. <laughs> Hopefully it won't. So yeah.
0: Well, I really enjoyed this book. I'm sure other people will enjoy it and thank you for coming on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you. I really appreciate talking to you. It was fun.